Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Good evening, welcome, it's Eric Erickson here. It is News 95.5 and AM 750 WSB, 9 after the hour. The phone number, 404-872-0750-1800, WSB Talk. I will get to Mike Flynn here in just a minute. What happened to him today? Very, very interesting stuff. I will get to that, but I, I got a question and I need, I think it needs to be raised, and that is, was the Stacey Abrams campaign run out of Moscow? Was her campaign orchestrated by the Russians? Now, I don't mean to be flip here, but uh, what are some of the things the Abrams campaign did? Uh, the Abrams campaign aggressively in the black community told black voters that Brian Kemp was out to steal the election that um, their their voter registrations were being canceled, their votes were being canceled, their absentee ballots were being thrown out, their provisional ballots were being thrown out, their early voting uh, was being thrown out. It It was all a mess. It was Brian Kemp stealing the election. Didn't matter what they did. I've had more than one reporter suggest to me. I mean, I had people call and they were angry with me for raising the issue. But I've had reporters subsequently say they do believe that Stacey Abrams lost some votes because she so thoroughly was able to convince a segment of the population that it didn't matter what they did, Brian Kemp was going to steal the election. And so they didn't bother to go vote. You will note that towards the end of the campaign, until after it was over, the campaign largely dropped that argument in the last couple of weeks because it seemed to be backfiring on them by suppressing the vote. But that's one of the things she did. One of the other things that the Abrams campaign did is they riled up socially conservative voters. Uh, Gun activists were riled up when Abrams went on uh, television on what The View and would not uh, oppose the idea of gun confiscations. If you'll remember that exchange, Meghan McCain specifically asked Stacey Abrams if she was in favor of confiscating guns. And Abrams would not say no on that. Uh, she was very, very, very um, jaded, if you would. I shouldn't say jaded. That's not the right word. Um, I, I, she obfuscated. I Man, I'm sorry. My brain's not working. She obfuscated on the issue. She would not just come out and say no. And Megan McCain pushed her on gun confiscation. She would not say no. That hurt her. 
Um, it hurt her with religious voters when she went out. She said she she's a believer and she doesn't think we need this. And, and essentially, uh, the Christian baker needs to bake the cake. That did not help her. Um, none of those things worked in her favor. And it really did not help in the last couple of weeks of the campaign after a massive, devastating hurricane to which this station, to its great credit, is still covering the immense fallout after that hurricane. Uh, Stacey Abrams went to South Georgia and insulted the agriculture community and farmers. That did not help the campaign. But you had gun rights activists were triggered when she went on The View. and uh, No pun intended there. Um, it, pro-lifers and religious voters were really upset with her for statements on abortion and on religious liberty issues. And then, of course, you had black voters who she kept telling them, your vote's not going to count. They're going to steal it from you. So we need to ask the question for a very important reason. We need to ask the question, was the Abrams campaign run out of Moscow? Were the Russians involved? Okay, so the reason I ask it that way, and, and let me just be up front here with you, maybe I should have done this before the traffic toss, but no, I don't actually think the Abrams campaign was run by the Russians out of Moscow or anything like that. But what I find very striking is that the Senate Intelligence Committee has released a report on Russian interference in the 2016 election. And you know what the Russians did, what the Senate report finds? The Russians targeted black voters and told them that the Republicans were going to steal it anyway, that the Republicans had rigged the vote, that the Republicans were suppressing the vote, that the Republicans were screwing up voter registrations, that the Republicans weren't counting absentee ballots, that the Republicans weren't counting provisional ballots, that it was the, the Republicans doing this, black voters, you better stay home. It's not even worth voting anymore. Uh, the deck is stacked against you. That's what the Russians did in 2016. It's what the Abrams campaign did. And the Russians also targeted uh, gun activists against Hillary Clinton and told gun activists, targeted gun activists through Facebook communities, through Instagram, uh, through Twitter and the like, that um, Hillary Clinton is coming to grab your guns, that she supports gun confiscation, that Hillary Clinton is going to round up your guns, she's going to pass gun control measures, they're going to force you to turn in your guns, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's what the Abrams campaign did. And that uh, religious voters were going to be targeted, Christians were going to be punished, the rise of persecution in this country, um, that is, the Supreme Court was going to be stacked with a bunch of people who were going to force Christians to violate their faith, that we were going to have pastors forced to perform gay marriage, bakers forced to bake the cakes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's pretty much what the Abrams campaign did, although not to that extent on that particular issue. But I just I'm, I'm reading the Senate report and it's staggering. The very things the Abrams campaign was doing are things the Russians were doing in 2016. You can't make this stuff up. It's just it's fascinating. Um, the Russians trying to suppress black voters, trying to mobilize Second Amendment and Christian voters for the president. But listen, it doesn't stop there because although the media is playing up these aspects of this report from the Senate Intelligence Committee, it turns out that the Russians were also doing things to mobilize Democratic voters, not because they wanted to help. And this is where the media has so badly misrepresented this report. It's not that the Russians wanted to help Donald Trump so much as they wanted everyone fighting against everyone and everyone paranoid. And it seems to be that they've succeeded with the media in particular so badly reporting on what actually happened. But 
I got to tell you, I, I was fascinated, fascinated to read this report and read the things the Russians were doing. And I just kept reading. I was like, wait a second. The Abrams campaign made this argument and this argument and this argument. It, it just, uh, history repeats itself in, in strange, crazy ways. And it was the Democrats. And, you know, this gets to, although he leaves Abrams out of it and other Democratic candidates, Nate Silver from 538 makes a very good point, 537. Um, and that is that if you actually read the Senate report, it is very incidental to the 2016 election. What swayed voters more, the Russians or Hillary Clinton's refusal to visit Western Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin? What made a bigger difference? And if you're arguing that the Russian interference made a bigger difference than the candidate's own failures, you probably need a reality check. But see, the reason this is all surfacing again and why the Democrats are out again saying it was the Russians helping Trump as opposed to the Russians sowing confusion and discord is because they cannot, they still can't acknowledge what a terrible candidate Hillary Clinton was. And that is just the basic reality of campaign 2016. She was a terrible, terrible candidate. And you don't have to ask me. They're now finally the Democratic leaders and pundits. They're beginning to mumble about her in 2020 as her name comes up. And they're like, nope, nope, nope. They don't want to say she was a terrible candidate in 2016. They can't admit it. But when it comes to 2020, no way. They want a fresh face, even if that fresh face is Joe Biden. Welcome back. It's Eric Erickson here. 404-872-0750-1800. WSB Talk. By the way, um, tomorrow, 1215, I've already got the email written. Uh, I am sending out my cinnamon roll recipe. If you want my cinnamon roll recipe, you got to be on my recipe list. I send out a recipe once a week at noon on 1215 on Wednesday. It's just one recipe once a week. I don't sell the email list. You're not going to get ads, spam, anything like that. It's just a recipe once a week. If you want it, text the word recipe to 345345, and I will send you that recipe on Wednesdays. I have a confession to make, and some of you are going to be very angry with me. You shouldn't be, but but you, you're going to be because I know this, the nature of some of the folks in the audience. Um, you know, one of the things that I tell you guys all the time is you should at least try to relate to the other side as the opposition, not the enemy. Uh, you should try to see them as a person, as an American, who just disagrees with you politically or culturally, uh, but they're not necessarily an evil person, a bad person, or what have you. And uh, one of the people who has taken me up on this, of all things, is my wife. And one of the things she wanted to do was she wanted to read Michelle Obama's biography. And she actually wound up loving the book because it's not political at all. She, Obama, Mrs. Obama, does not delve into political issues and policy. It's just stories about her childhood and growing up in Chicago and her family. And, and I mean, stories just about uh, obtaining shoes when she was a child and learning to play the piano and things like that. And those are the things my, my wife absolutely loves uh, story time like that. Uh, she absolutely loves those stories. And so she loved the book because it's those sorts of stories. So Christy's birthday is tonight. The The show is a bridge tonight. There's a basketball game at 630. And so I am taking my wife out to dinner. And for her birthday, I got her tickets to see Michelle Obama in Atlanta in May. Yes, I did. I will be taking my wife to see Michelle Obama 
in May. You can start praying for me now. <laughs> I don't know that they'll even let me in. Um, but yes, that that's what we're doing. She she has no idea. Uh, absolutely no idea. I, I have waited. To t- I've been w- wanting to tell her forever. And you know, I'm terrible. I get someone a, a gift for Christmas or their birthday, and I want them to have it now because I'm so excited that I put that much thought and effort into getting them something. I know they'll like. I want them to have it and be happy immediately and not wait. I'm I'm terrible with delayed gratification myself on stuff like this, and, and I'm terrible with others when it comes to that as well. But nonetheless, um, Today is her birthday, and she will find out. I also got her one of those fancy Dyson hair dryer things. She, the lady who cuts her hair, loves it, and Christy has loves it, and so she got one of those. So, there you go. Um, so we will go as soon as the show is over tonight. Uh, I guess reservations at seven, so we'll be able to get there uh, to dinner. Anyway, when we come back, we need to move into the Mike Flynn stuff. What happened in court today? Or really threw reporters for a loop. They weren't expecting the drama. Boy, was there some drama. It's Eric Erickson, and it's 39 after the hour. The phone number is 404-872-0750-1800. WSB Talk. Mike Flynn has not pled guilty. Uh, in fact, uh, he's pled nothing. He went to court today. It was kind of interesting. Um, so the judge, Judge Sullivan, is kind of the, the gruff judge in Washington. He, he's, he's been part of many a rodeo. I, I think back during the, the Clinton scandals and everything else, uh, the judge has been around the block and this morning things got off, uh, to a bang with, uh, the judge basically saying, uh, they should have charged Mike Flynn with treason. And of course, all the Democrats, Oh, of course. Oh, they should have been, he's a, he's caused a traitor on and on and on. Well, after lunch, the judge walked it all back and actually apologized from the bench, saying he had misunderstood one of the key facts uh, that the the things that Mike Flynn was doing, he stopped doing after the election. That uh, particularly this was the his his negotiations with the Russians and whatnot. Uh, he was working or not the Russians, the Turks. He was working essentially as a lobbyist for Turkey without disclosing it and agent of a foreign government. You got to disclose these things in Washington and he didn't do it and he got in big trouble. And the, now two of his associates are pleading guilty or being charged with representing the Turkish government without disclosing it. Um, but Sullivan sounded like he wanted to throw the book at, at Flynn and then walked it all back uh, after the prosecutor explained that, no, 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 this stuff wasn't going on while he was in the White House. I've got to tell you, so Judge Sullivan ordered the investigators from Bob Mueller's team to release the memo documenting what Mike Flynn had told them. The moral of the story is never lie to the FBI. The reason I say never lie to the FBI is because none of what Mike Flynn told the FBI, or none of the stuff I should say because he lied, none of the stuff Mike Flynn did was illegal. In fact, the stuff Mike Flynn did was a legitimate function of being the national security advisor for the incoming president of the United States during a transition period between administrations. What Flynn did is he reached out to the Russian ambassador and uh, the Russian foreign minister and others and essentially told them, hey, President Trump's been elected. 
He wants a different relationship than what the Obama administration wants. You do not need to retaliate against the United States for the imposition of sanctions Obama's just done. We're going to roll all that stuff back when President Trump comes in. There's no reason to shake financial markets as President Trump comes in. We're going to reverse this. That is a perfectly legitimate function of the incoming National Security Advisor. Whether you like it or not, it is a totally legitimate function. And that's all Flynn did. But Flynn did something else as well. He lied to the FBI about it. You see, the FBI was not recording Mike Flynn's phone calls. The FBI was recording calls to the Russians. They were recording the Russians' information. And Flynn got caught in phone conversations that the FBI was uh, recording from the Russians. That's how they found out about all this stuff. And the reality is that none of what Flynn said was criminal. And the judge, once he realized all of this this afternoon, he really he apologized from the bench about accusing him of treason, among other things, and seemed a little bit incredulous, except for the fact that Flynn lied to the FBI. Now, so on Flynn... I really do think that he was convinced the FBI would report back to the Obama administration. And the Trump team wanted to keep everybody from the Obama administration in the dark. So they didn't want to admit it. They didn't want to fess up. So he lied to the FBI thinking that uh, there would would be no trace back. There would be no punishment. Uh, that it was perfectly legitimate to do that to keep the Obama administration in the dark if he thought the FBI was going to rat out the change in policy. That fundamentally what Flynn did came from a position of not trying to willfully obstruct the United States, but trying to willfully obstruct Barack Obama's administration from putting anything in place to stop President Trump from changing public policy with regard to Russia. I, this is all speculation on my part again, but just the, the whole series of events, the rhetoric from back in 2016, everything we've known since then seems to me that just as the Obama administration was willing to do a lot of stuff they shouldn't have done with regard to the uh, the Steele dossier and things like that, I think that also the Trump administration and Mike Flynn in particular did things out of a complete distrust of Barack Obama. Both sides behaved badly and unethically uh, because of their distrust of each other, but it is this administration that's going to see people carted off to jail. Whether you think that's fair or not, that's the reality of the situation. I meant to mention in the discussion of Mike Flynn that the judge has held over the sentencing until March because it turns out that Mike Flynn is still cooperating with the Bob Mueller investigation. We don't know what he is cooperating about. We don't know what information he is providing. I assume that he is not implicating the president in anything. It is very interesting to see the president lashing out at Mike Cohen for taking a plea deal, but not lashing out at General Flynn. Now, part of that is the president loves him some generals, but also I think the president probably understands that Mike Flynn is not selling him out. 
And so it makes me wonder what information he is handing to the prosecutor. It'd be really interesting if he is selling out the president, what the president's reaction is ultimately going to be. When we come back, I want to shift gears uh, a little bit. There are tons of reports out there about people being worried about the president's mental state and, and things like that. You know, I can tell you from people in the White House that there are erratic moments. Um, they fret sometimes about the president's Twitter tirades when he watches too much TV, but they don't think that he, there's a meltdown. And, you know, you finally got um, Maggie Haberman of the New York Times uh, and uh, several other reporters, um, Jonathan Swan from Axios and others coming out saying, you know what, it's actually not that big of a soap opera anymore. Things have settled down. There is a pace. There is a routine. He can certainly be erratic. He can have mood swings. But by and large, the president is in a good mood and things function in the White House. And yet there are still these reports come out about the dysfunctional meltdowns at the White House and the president's state of mind. I, I, got, a, I got a montage I want to play for you. And I also I want to dismiss this. I, I want to rebut this because I've got my own sources in the White House, and I'll tell you what my sources in the White House tell me, which really doesn't comport with the whole madness scenario these days. It used to, but it doesn't anymore, and why that is when we come back. Welcome back. The second hour, Eric Erickson here. Reminder, there is a basketball game at the bottom of the hour. Uh, Also, this is important. Uh, This time, January 3rd, uh, the show's going to be over. Uh, We're going to end at 6 o'clock. No, it's not going down to to just an hour. Sorry, people. (laughs) No. I'm taking 4 o'clock, so 4 to 6. So all of drive time with... Uh, the exception of about the last 30 minutes or so. Uh, Mark Aram is going to be 6 to 8. And then you can listen to the second and third hour of Sean Hannity from 8 to 10. Uh, so starting 4 o'clock, January 3rd. And uh, the Christmas show, I think they're going to start playing it over the weekend. I have not done it yet. Um, but it'll be played multiple times. If you want a copy of the podcast of the show so you can see, listen to it, uh, going into all the facts and figures and history and whatnot of Christmas, why Christmas is on December 25th. No, it's not because Christians co-opted pagan holidays and whatnot. Uh, text the word show to 444-999 and I'll send you the podcast link. I I was going to play you a montage about the president, uh, the media's coverage of the president's state of mind. And I listened to it again uh, during the break and I don't want to. And I don't want to because one of the words they repeat over and over, some of you still have your kids in the car. It's not really a dirty word, but I get mad when my kid says it, even though it's a dirty word. Um, it, it is a it, angry is a, a synonym for angry. Um, and I just I, I, I don't want to I don't want you with your kids in the car. And I know a lot of you do have your kids in the car. Um, I, I, I don't want to have that word played over and over and over again for a minute, 30 seconds. So I'm not actually going to play the montage. I will just tell you that the media for the last week now has been running stories about the president's state of mind. And it's like the narrative hasn't shifted. I have a, a lot of really, really good friends. Some of my friends for, I've probably been friends with them for 
10, 15 years, some really good friends of mine work for this president in very senior positions within this White House. Um, it, it, it's kind of funny, having not really been a fan of this president, to see so many dear friends of mine move into this White House and uh, the old executive office building, the new executive office building, and, and they're giving the president candidate advice. And it makes me reassured, frankly, because I know the caliber of and character of the people who are giving him advice. And early on, a lot of these people told me very similar stories to what you heard in the media. The president was out of out of depth. He was very angry. He didn't like the way things were going. He didn't like the wind up of the Mueller investigation. It was chaos. It was infighting. It was cutthroat. People stabbing each other in the back. It was just a disaster. And it, those people, though, who were causing a lot of the problems over time, they're gone. They're no longer there. And everyone uniformly tells me in this White House that there actually is on a day-to-day -day basis uh, order. It is no longer as chaotic as people think. It's like the, the reality has moved on and the narrative still exists. And that happens a lot. And there are people in the media who perpetuate it. They're the, the Vanity Fair. Uh, you know, Gabe Sherman, when I was at Fox, I had multiple people tell me it was very eerie that Gabe Sherman could write about things that happened behind the scenes at Fox and it was like he was in the room. And I don't hear that so much from people in the White House now uh, that it is it's grievance nursing in many cases. It's not that chaotic. Uh, there are certainly people who are still cutthroat. There are certainly political machinations behind the scenes. But by and large, the president is not in an angry, dour mood all the time. He's actually relatively upbeat uh, and things proceed in the White House relatively normally. Um, it's just a complete reversal, and yet the narrative lingers because it's a narrative that sells. It is because people on the left still believe this, and so the media continues to perpetuate the story, and it's just really not true anymore. I bring this up because in addition to some of the, the stories at Vanity Fair and elsewhere, you're going to start hearing a bunch of stories about the president fuming over the Flynn situation, the Cohen situation, the Mueller situation, on and on and on and on, and I... I don't know that that's necessarily true. The president seems in, and this is what I'm told by people in the White House, that the president, contrary to what a lot of people think now, he doesn't stew on a lot of these issues anymore. He has a cathartic release on Twitter and then he moves on. And he may circle back to things as it comes up on, on TV. He does watch a lot of TV still. And as these issues are raised on TV, he may circle back to them. But he's not so overwhelmed with these things that he's incapable of functioning. And I think that's worth remembering in a, you, when you read a lot of these stories that are trying to shape the White House up still as out of control uh, highly chaotic, et cetera. It's just, that's not the reality. And again, I, I'm I'm not just reading Maggie Haberman and Jonathan Swan who are writing that that's no longer the reality. I know the people who work in the White House. And no, I, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm getting a text message from a listener right now asking if I'm going to name those people. No, I'm not going to name them. Uh, and the reason I'm not going to name them is because they are going to be immediately the people who get blamed for leaking stuff to me. And in the overwhelming number of cases, the people who do leak to me are not the people I consider very good friends, although some of them do. Um, some of them are lifelong friends and have leaked, but by and large, the leakers are the leakers for everyone else as well. But I, I don't want to name them. I don't want to get them in trouble. I don't want to get them fired. Um, I actually had a situation 
with a friend of mine who, you know, there are a ton of people in this White House who um, who read me, who actually listen to this podcast. And I know because I can get IP addresses uh, for people who read The Resurgent and people who listen to this podcast and download it. And there are a lot of people in the West Wing who listen to me and read me and who like me. Again, I got a lot of friends there. And they like the fact that as much as I may call out the president, I, I try to also praise him. And this isn't to, to, to uh, tout my own horn. It, it is just a reminder, though, that the it's the political side of things that can be problematic uh, for people. A, a friend of mine was telling me recently of an encounter with some of the political team that, who don't work in the White House. And they were a little bit concerned that he and I were friends. And he had to reassure them that uh, it was okay. It's, it's, it's kind of funny how some of these lingering grievances from 2016 have have stuck around and you know one of the the most frustrating things right now in a position like mine and and others in the conservative movement is that uh, we've had to become very good diplomats because there are a lot of us who aren't fans of the president but like a lot of what he and his administration do and we want to support those things and we still get blasted on a regular basis every single day people call this program and want to yell at me that I'm still uh, angry, bitter, never Trump. And every day we get calls from people who want to call and, and say they're disgusted that I've sold out, um, that I've become a Trump pumper, um, and on and on and on, insulting me for saying something nice about the president. And I figure there's a nice, nice good line there that I've got people still attacking me from both sides. It is very difficult, though, now to be friends with people on both sides of this issue, you become a very good diplomat because you've got friends who no longer talk to each other because some have fallen completely in with the Trump team and some want absolutely nothing to do with him and believe anyone who does is sold out. And trying to be friends on both sides these days is very, very difficult. I have a, I have a circle of friends. They've been a, a good accountability group of mine for a decade or so. And they have fallen apart in part because of the Trump issue. There were other issues as well. But then the, the, this one issue caused a problem. And now with, with the remainder, the Trump issue has caused a problem. And it, they get angry with each other. And I'm just like, you know what? I should be able to say, I don't like this, but I do like that. And I shouldn't have to sell out my principles and I shouldn't have to defend what I think is indefensible. I shouldn't have to defend the bad behavior, but I should be willing to praise the good behavior. And there's some people these days who just they can't do it. It's either all bad or it's all good. And, and we're all sinners. So there's no way it's all good. And but there's no way it's all bad either. Um, it's very frustrating. But a, all these press reports that it's always bad and always obsessed and always out of control. Those are all wrong. And I don't think you should believe them. Uh, yes. Are there problems in the world? Oh, yes. Is there chaos? Yes. Is there dysfunction? Yes. But it's not all day, every day. Um, and now I, I've totally, I've lost my, oh, I know what I was going to say. Um, you know, every year I do the, a good Friday show and it is, it, it actually is a burden. Um, is, is it emotionally draining to do the good Friday show? And, you know, after the, the first year I did it, uh, the reaction from, from some folks around here was, oh, that's just, that's too much Jesus talk. 
Um, don't do that again. But we, we were overwhelmed with requests from people to please, please, please. They wanted copies of the show, will you podcast, et cetera. And it just it took on a life of its own, and now it's kind of expected around here. And it is emotionally grueling to do that show. Um, but, uh, man, um, the pig farmer and, and management here at WSB have been so encouraging every year, and now they've asked me to do the Christmas show as well. And the Christmas show is not really emotionally grueling because, I, you know, I've been taking the church history classes and really going through. And, like, did you know there are 5,700 copies of Greek New Testament uh, letters written within 100 years of, of the resurrection? So it's not like we can say that, oh, they, they waited forever to write Scripture. No, no, no. It, it's within 100 years we were having copies, which means the originals were made uh, well within 100 years. It's just fascinating stuff like that. Uh, that. Did you know Polycarp and Ignatius, two of the early church martyrs, they were students of, of John the apostle. They're actually how we know he wrote the gospel of John because they wrote about him writing the gospel of John. They were there when he did it. Just fascinating stuff. And so I put all that in, in a Christmas program and why Christmas is the 25th. Uh, there's a specific reason. It has nothing to do with co-opting Saturnalia or the um, Saul Invictus. It has real legitimate reasons from the early church. So all that's together. Uh, and I'll do that show and I'll push it out as a podcast. Uh, if you're gone for Christmas, and you want to listen to it, text the word show to 444-999. You should find it as educational as I did doing the research for it. Very excited to be able to do this this year. Uh, in the meantime, we've got a UGA game coming up tomorrow night at seven. I do want to tell you West Moss is going to be here. Um, you know, the stock market is just having the worst year since the great depression, pretty much or worst December, at least. And Wes is going to be here to talk you through the finances. You're going to want to listen to that. I will see you guys tomorrow night though. I'm going to take my wife out for birthday. Now. See y'all.